Hello and welcome to Process Transformers, the podcast that talks about business transformation at the intersection of processes and AI. For those of you who have listened before, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, thanks for tuning in. My name is Lucas Eger, and I'm the head of innovation at SAP Siglavio. I'll be your host in today's show titled Lessons Learned from Two Decades in Innovation. And we chose the title and our guest because generative AI feels like maybe the biggest challenge in decades. And before jumping in and trying to change our businesses and processes, we wanted to talk with a real veteran of change, someone who knows how we got here, how the industry of change itself has changed, and how as businesses can we learn from what has happened in terms of process transformation and change in the last 20 years. And with that, it's quite the honor to introduce today's guest, Peter Teams, the president of the Institute for Innovation in Large Organizations, ILO. And to give you just a little bit of a flavor of what Peter is all about, Peter founded the Institute, the ILO, in 2005. And he has been consulting and helping big organizations multi-billion dollar corporations to help with their innovation agendas, among them companies like IBM, PepsiCo, Marriott, and many others. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really an honor. And I want to kick off this conversation today by asking you, when you began 20 years ago, what were the first members looking for? Because it's really such a rare treat to have somebody who has such vast experience, has been in this industry for so long and has such a profound track record of success. So I would be curious to hear really your perspective on two decades of an industry of innovation and change. Well, thank you. Thank you for the question and thank you for having me with you. Uh, I think as you know, Lucas, I regard you and the work that you do at uh, SAP Sicavio as among the best of the best in this business of innovation in large organizations. So I, I always enjoy spending time with you. I want to do that anytime I can. So when we started almost 20 years ago, it's very interesting. We, we had a lot of help from Clayton Christensen, whom 10 years ago, everyone would have recognized as the biggest name, the most influential character in innovation in large organizations. Today, less so, though his influence is still extremely important and foundational. You know, he's the fellow who, who coined the phrase disruptive innovation. And the Fortune 500, the Global 2000, hung on his every word to a degree. It was Andy Grove at Intel who was really his kind of keynote early advocate and client. And he was very much responsible for helping them broaden the base of what they sold and go from selling something that they positioned as the best of the best, the essential and expensive secret ingredient if you're going to make uh, computer hardware to include chips like the Celeron and chips that are suitable for very small devices that sell at very much a lower price point. His model was a model that, that basically presumed that every incumbent will be disrupted, will have its business stolen from it. 
from upstarts if they don't figure out how to do that kind of disruption themselves. And he's a very generous man, a brilliant man, uh, the most notable faculty member at Harvard Business School. I'd, I'd met him when I had a very junior role at Harvard many years ago. And in the work that he helped us with, we would bring in senior people from very large organizations. That's still a lot of what we do many, many times a year across the U.S. and Europe. And folks would come in not in the nitty-gritty of innovation. You know, maybe we'd have a business unit leader, a CIO, a CTO, but nobody in those very early days walked into the room feeling like their job was running innovation as a very distinctive function. That was something that was just being stood up. Clay's advice was, you need to sell what you sell in a less expensive version at a lower margin, competing against non-consumption and standing distant from the center of your firm so the center doesn't destroy the new. And folks just wanted to know what disruption was. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. Thank you so much, but I'm, I'm really curious. 20 years ago, was the perception of innovation the same? Because these days, it feels like an elusive, beautiful category. Everybody needs to be right. part of innovation. And it's right. almost like this perfect thing right. that's just good, right? And yeah. everybody, in a way, loves innovation. At 20 years ago, did you need to sell innovation? Did people have the same yeah. perception? Or would you say yeah. it markedly changed? I would say there was, a, there was a cadre of brave senior leaders at large firms who wanted to invest in understanding what the heck Clay and other folks like Eric Von Hippel at MIT were talking about. What some of these really creative disruptive firms, what 20 years ago, what a, what a company like AOL had to say about being online, right? Um, they needed a framework of ideas rather than feeling that there was a fire they had to put out. So that might have been what you could call even the prehistory of innovation as a corporate function. Over the next five years or so, you saw a consensus growing that innovation was a creation function. We need an innovation function to create the next billion-dollar business unit, to help us acquire the right external firm that would transfer its innovative DNA into the core. But these were adjuncts and add-ons. And for the most part, the firms we were working with were not asking us, how do we transform it? They were saying things like, how can we have a more innovative culture or a culture of innovation? But what they really tended to mean was, how can we take what we're doing and do it a little better and a little smarter and a little more future mapping? Today, it's radically different. Sure. Today, number one, folks don't want to keep that innovation unit far from the core, they will need to transform the core and they know that. They don't want to look at how innovation is a special flavor of R&D or M&A. Instead, they recognize, or at least they're beginning to recognize something we talk about a lot, which is that innovation isn't just a creation function and maybe largely isn't a creation function at all, but more of a matching function with the maturing of internet technologies and now this kind of midpoint of maturing with artificial intelligence, the idea that most problems either have already been solved or are being solved among the billions at the edge 
rather than by and through the hundreds or the thousands at our corporate center, you know, around whom we can erect the wall. That notion has shifted. And I'd say we're, we're maybe halfway through a change in thinking so that innovation as matching emerging needs with emerging solutions and technologies is, is the center of the value. Thank you so much. This is fascinating. I want to ask a little bit about what you mentioned regarding the function of creation and the function of matching, yes. because it sounds yes. really intriguing. I think like it's, it's like one of the ideas that stands out. Would you say that this idea of matching function is because these days we think of innovation largely done by big corporations? Or do you think this is a maturity evolution of the idea of innovation? In a sense, like, um, is there like a form follows function kind of idea or the yeah. other way around? Yeah, I think more the second, that innovation today is much more about capturing this bubbling activity that you couldn't stop if you wanted to and connecting it with the intelligence and the market-serving orientation of the big firm, right? I mean, one way to look at this is really in a fundamental way, humans are inherently innovative. I mean, we are built to be adaptive. There's a nervousness built into the human ecosystem, which is why loss aversion is a stronger instinct than value creation for the ordinary human. We're more attuned to the monster that's going to leap out of the forest and eat us than we are to how to plant crops and grow food over time, right? So we always have to fight that very intentionally, the, the bias against loss aversion. So what you see is that it's the firm, the structure of what a firm is, what a corporation is, what a large organization is, which is kind of an intervention into human nature to get us to follow rules, to get us to be more feature focused to get us to be less focused generally on loss aversion and more focused on the efficiency of creating and delivering value. But that calcifies that human creativity. And as most of us have seen, the crazy creatives tend to be big organizations. People with a strong sense of discipline seem to do well. And now the question is, how do we balance? And a lot of the work was done in the last year or two have focused on teams. There was a strong notion for a very long time that people who were innovative by nature were the kinds of folks who should be on innovation teams. And in fact, it's becoming very clear today, innovation teams need a distribution of different kinds of folks. You probably want a couple of the wild thinkers, but you also want ambassadors who built trust over time with other folks who are doing the ordinary production work in a firm. You want the characters who help a team communicate better and perform at a higher level. So there's more of a sense of the nuance of assembling a team and, and even the next hire you need to help drive an innovation group is less what they have in the absolute sense and more how do they contribute balance and unlock the talent of the team overall. I love how you're really putting the first principle thinking first, and it's fascinating to hear that. I, I'm curious because you are in this business for so long. Can you tether or connect this to concrete practices? Like mm. maybe a practice 20 years ago and today, mm, just to Give me an, like yeah. an example of like what it yeah. felt like, right? Um, that would maybe right. sound like outlandish today or vice versa. Right, right. 
Well, you know, again, building out that new thing and then handing it off into the production group, that that was a model that matured. I think we saw it maturing. We hopefully helped to have it mature in those early years so that you'd see an organization like UCLA Health, um, British Telecom was really good at this, where you'd have the three-part chain that we now take for granted, ideation. Everyone's got great ideas. Let's get them to contribute those ideas to the center. Let's get our experts who are always surveilling the world, articulate some ideas. Then we'll vet. We'll see what really we're able to do and what our market wants and do a proof of concept. Uh-huh. And once the proof of concept has said, yeah, we can build this. Yeah, the market wants it. Then we hand it off. One, two, three. That model still has a lot of use and most firms should do that. But that is a minority of the value that an innovation function can create. Partly because... After proof of concept, the handoff has always been a point of resistance. Politically, you know, the head of manufacturing in a firm says, I know how to do manufacturing. Who are you? And how how dare you tell me and my team how to do something new and different? We're pretty awesome already. But well beyond that, the idea that what the innovation function can do at that level, and we now we now call that the magnet. Right? We're going to try to pull ideas into the beginning of that funnel, prove them and develop them. That's about what's possible. And what's possible is vital. But more the question of what our organization, which has a lot of value across 10,000 or 100,000 employees, what we need specifically, the challenges that we're trying to solve, because unlike the early lens of you know, innovators versus dinosaurs, in a well-functioning firm, they're not dinosaurs. The reason people aren't inventing new things in their production roles is they're busy doing other great things and making money to feed the whole community. Now I think you have much more of a sense of a supportive role of innovation going in, solving known problems as a first point, and only over time beginning to propose new and better problems that folks haven't even thought of yet. But that first point, partly because the success in those early phases have changed everybody's mind. I mean, you look at someone like Clayton Christensen. You, you look at the folks who wrote the first wave of books and did the first notable experiments and had the first big successes. You know, from, from Reed Hoffman, I mentioned Eric Von Hempel. You can look at open innovation as a movement. And, you know, folks getting an MBA today, they read all those books. They know those case studies. 20 years ago, that was the edge. Some significant degree, it's the center. And very current research we're doing right now, and have not published yet, says that there are fewer and fewer chief innovation officers and, you know, senior VPs of innovation in big firms, but more and more innovation activity using what we would call the innovation toolkit as a norm rather than an exception. So you can look at innovation as a movement, as a corporate function movement beginning 20 to 30 years ago, kind of winning and then becoming a norm rather than a special thing. There is, an, for me at least, an obvious follow-up question that I'm really interested in. Um, there's a tendency of people who work in innovation to point out the differences, right? Saying, hey we really try to optimize the cost of change, right? The rest of the organization should try to minimize the cost of transactions. So we're a little bit different. Um, 
do you think that like the you talked about the humble beginnings, like one step at a time, then rolling it out? Um, do you think it's because the practice needs to get better, or do you think it needs to democratize and everybody yeah. needs to do innovation? Right? Like, yeah. what is the ideal model? Is it like a a unique thing, or is it somebody everybody can do in a way? I think it's it's both and all of the above. I think the difference is change as a function is not an intervention. Change as a function is the norm. So if you are delivering, if you're, if you're and, and I'd say NCP Navio is probably closer to this than most, if you're a pure digital delivery item, you're doing that kind of product-led growth model, PLG, that people talk about in Silicon Valley, but not a lot of other places. And you're observing how your customers use your product a little differently every day and what they ask it to do that it can't do yet. You're observing that moment by moment. And you are making changes in your product to match against what customers are asking it to do. That's becoming a norm in some sectors and that will become a norm in most. I mean, you can say, hey, that sounds like it's really cool if I'm doing a pure online technology tool, but I sell groceries. Well, take a look at Amazon. They're changing their assortment and their pricing minute to minute to minute based on what folks are asking for and how they're using the tool. So change is less a discrete thing. It's not, it's not going to be the function of an internal group that comes in and does change on the operating. It's going to be what the operating does. Ten years ago, we had a whole wave of, of research requests from companies like Monsanto. IBM had gotten this right for a while, at least earlier than that of looking at how a formal R&D unit can thrive in this emerging area. And what a lot of folks inside the traditional R&D units would ask us to research is how can we keep our strategic voice, centrality, buildings, separate staff? But the answer was, you're going to have to give up a lot of that stuff. And what you're going to have to do is move R&D into edge rather than center activities in your firm. Locate more of your R&D people in customer-facing teams so that you don't have to have this information journey into the center and then going back out. But you have a much shorter loop and it's much more responsive. That's much more the world we're living in there. Just to follow up on that idea, this is a very descriptive way of how it happened to be in the last 20 years. But uh, of course, everybody who faces change, it's, it's never really pleasant and, and easy. Uh, so I guess my question is, do you also think that should be the uh, prescriptive way of thinking of it? Is that where it needs to go? Or would you say, ah, there's a couple of ideas we should revive or like maybe we yeah. should rethink the way of, of how it's currently done? I think there are folks who are really good at repeating existing tasks, who are high efficiency players. There are folks who are high discovery players. To some degree, the way we structure the organization and the, the way we train people can soften that difference. But there will always be people who you need to employ to do, you know, only four or five things and to be very good. There's greater value over time in the folks who can do that kind of work well, but who also have great adaptability to change. And that's a better position to be in. Your firm is better positioned if it's able to discern who those people are and hire them. And those people will have better careers if they have much greater adaptability to change. Not as a secondary issue. You know, 
not to be someone who says, I need to be, and, and it's interesting, if you look at how computer science and, and you know, data analytics programs have changed over the years, instead of saying, I need to be really good at Fortran and COBOL because that's the future, you know, circa 1950, or I need to really get C sharp and C++. Now it's much more the kind of uh, computer architecture, senior system architect is a really better job with a better future than, you know, the production coder. If you look at the, the rooms, the acres and acres of people banging out code uh, on keys, we know that AI is already displacing a lot of those jobs. But the senior software architect, the senior software engineer, because what they're doing is thinking much less about what's the next line of code and the next line of code, but what they're thinking about is what problems is this going to solve and how can we architect these programs chunk by chunk in a modular way? It's not just to say that's the future, that's kind of the present. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can make a lot more money. And you look at individuals, there are a lot of jobs that are great career jobs at that level that are becoming better paid. And there are a lot of jobs at just the straight ahead programmer level that are going away you know, countably right now. Absolutely. Um, because you touched on something about like individual roles and, and how it's currently feeling in a way. Um, I'm curious and um, it's, it's more on a soft kind of uh, question side. Do you feel like the angst some people have today about the future, the worry um, mm -hmm. is the same as it was 20 years ago? Maybe not in terms of like, no. What could materialize the threats or these kind of things, but rather, like, is the unknown and uncertainty as angst inducing today as it was 20 years ago? Or has that changed? Uh, because, in a way, I want to ask um, how should we go about innovation in the future? And maybe, you know, the lesson could be hey, it has always felt the same, or, or maybe, yeah. No, I think that's right. And, and I think our. <laughs> The degree to which we're threatened by technology change is significantly lower than it was 10, 20 years ago. And Lord knows, if you try to level to a low or a zero technology era, we all lived vastly less well and with much greater threat of all kinds 100 years ago, right? Particularly if you look at how technology, you know, quote unquote, eliminates jobs. I don't have to go back more than three or four generations to find people who more or less physically created things, grew food, did that brutal work to make stuff. And with every wave of technology change, there were winners and losers. But most of us are descendants of peasants who are now obsolete, right? And I think that will not change. The question is, you know, as technology matures, we tend to be able to create more value for society with less effort, individual by individual. The question is, how can we socialize those gains and how do we manage the transition? And that gets to this bigger issue. I mean, you've been in the room, I believe, when I've asked, you know, 15 or 20 senior executives around the table over the last year, do you expect the overall uh, staff size of your organization 12 months from now to be larger, smaller, or same? And the majority has always been larger, even through lots of anxiety about the broader uh, economic status. Today, it's, it's robustly Bigger, 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 bigger. We're, we're seeing so many indications of a great economy ahead, except that the biggest risk is political. If our political systems 
fail or fail to a greater degree than they're always failing, it does impede growth and it does create real challenges. And that includes issues around foreign trade. It includes issues about people, ordinary folks being willing to get up in the morning and go to work. The notion of what our elites, what our leaders are telling us about how the world is and whether we ought to be hopeful and whether our efforts will be rewarded. That is, in my opinion, you know, a real governing factor. It's the platforms issue, right? We, we've gone yeah. from talking about discrete apps, discrete tools, to saying the best thing is platforms and then let people bring their infinite variability and creativity to build on those platforms in a way that we don't necessarily predict. We need stronger political platforming, social, civic infrastructure platforming. And more opportunity to people for people to feel that those platforms make them safe and they can invest in their futures and build up. And, and that is about innovation. Be, and I should say it's about innovation because innovation works better with a larger number of smaller bets. And in a confident society, 100 million individuals feel safe enough to make bets and to try and fail and try again. In a, in a society where you have a weaker platform and the society could be a corporation, it could be a nation. Folks want to hoard what they have and not take that next risk. I love the analogy of creative construction and the ecosystem of the small bats and all of that. I'm, I'm curious because we do want to also focus on takeaway messages about mm -hmm. how for individual leaders, people engage mm -hmm. with innovation or processes. What right. would you recommend for, let's say, small viable unit of change in a big organization. Yeah. Um, how will innovation change? What will maybe stay the same? What will right. be like a couple of pointers where you go like, all right, this is definitely helpful. That's yeah. what we would recommend with yeah. all of the history and experience. One of the greatest questions we had at one of our meetings very, very recently, around a table with someone saying, you know, in our company, we keep talking about everyone needing to be a leader. Everyone should play a leadership role. We don't know how to do that. And that sounds just like talk. If you begin with the notion that the fundamental role of the leader is to serve the group, the way to get someone to feel like everyone needs to be a leader is to say everyone needs to help others. So look around your work group. Look around the five or 50 or 500 people you interact with. What can you do to help them today? That builds the kind of trust that makes it more possible to pull together folks to try something new. But first comes that notion that I've got your back, that I'm here to, to work with you. Trust is a real prerequisite to the good kinds of innovation that stick inside of large organizations. And you build trust by keeping promises and by doing good things for others. So if you're a manager of a small innovation group, that's a great thing to focus. How can I help you? And more importantly, how can you help others in a way that's going to feel rewarding? And then as you go up the ladder, the next question, I know you guys are great at this in your group, is to look at the challenges that folks outside the innovation group already know about and are trying to solve and figure out how you can lend more resources and more speed and more solution value to them. To start not by saying, here's the innovation vision, but by saying, We're going to help serve you by helping you solve problems you already know you have. And then over time, you build the trust to say, here's something even bigger that you can do 
And we want to open the door for you to do it if you so choose. That's when you become the kind of leader who helps the group not only solve problems it knows it have, but think about problems to engage that are different and better from where they start, where they, where they start from. And that, that goes across what individuals can do and what groups can do. And, and to me, that's very much the culture of innovation. And it has to be connected to what your end users get so that the value doesn't stick to the firm as competitive advantage. The value sticks to the customer and the customer will always want to come back for more if that's really what's going on. Peter, that's such a beautiful message. Um, but I do want to, at the end, I do want to put you on the spot because uh, <laughs> like, we're also all about real processes. So um, if you had the power to instantly transform a single business process, you can choose really whatever, whatever comes to yeah. mind. What would it be and why? I think that's a great question. And, and if I really take a minute to think about that, I think it would be to give more folks who are coming to work every day more choice in what they do that adds value. And, and what I mean about that particularly is, you know, you're an executive. Those of us who've had the privilege to be in these executive roles, if we feel like there's a big meeting coming up in the afternoon and we just need to take a walk in the morning or go to one of our company's retail stores just to refresh on the culture before we sit with the big boss, we do it. We match the small tasks based on how we feel now, what we've discovered we need to know without checking in so much. That's a privilege of being at the top of the chart. The, the greater the degree that folks all up and down the org chart can opt in to equally valuable work of a different kind in a different moment, the more effective the organization is going to be overall. There are many challenges to that. But if you look at why people quit and why you wind up with a talent shortage, if you look at why people, this is a tragedy, People who are okay at one task and brilliant at another spend the majority of their time on the less productive, less joyful task. It's really because we as managers aren't matching them appropriately. And if it's up to us at the top to observe and match, we will never do as good a job as distributing that challenge to the folks who really know who they are and know the work they do that gives them pride and creates more of a value. The question we have, again, is back to the platform. How do we organize those choices so that there is no bad choice? Because we need this and we need that. And you as an individual might leave a hole and someone else will opt into it because that's what they're better at too. Peter, that's so much food for thought. Um, it has been really inspiring. And I, I hear a consistent theme about you being excited about innovation, about <laughs> like the challenges that lie ahead. I think you're doing everybody a great service. I, I think uh, we can all be glad that we have institutions like the ILO. Um, it has been such a pleasure. Thanks for uh, being part of today's episode. And with that, I wish you all the best. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Process Transformers. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at processtransformers at sap.com. And until next time, for another transformative conversation. <laughs>